you will get to know them the rest of your life. I remember the classroom I was sitting in. I was 19 years old, and my professor said, some you will reject, some you will spend the rest of your life getting to know. I was a Bible college student in Seattle, Washington, and my professor introduced myself and my other classmates to biblical characters. And the reason why, he said, this is a living book. You'll meet real people with flesh and bones. They'll have victories for God. And some of them will have great failures. Some will show great faith. Some will show fear. And you will get to know them the rest of your life. And so today, we begin the study of one of those people. We begin a brand new series called The Heart of the King. This will not be exhaustive by any means. In fact, this morning, it might be quite frustrating for you because we're going to quickly go through many chapters of Scripture, but I really want to camp on uh, chapters 13 and 15 in 1 Samuel, chapter, chapters 13 and 15, and I hope it will encourage you. As we look at King Saul this morning, I hope your heart, as we take a look at the mirror of God's Word, will say, Lord, forgive me. Have mercy on me. Protect me. Guide me. Let me hunger for you. This, as Ryan prayed for us, is a season of Lent, and it's a time to examine our hearts with the light of God's Word and to repent from blind spots and blank spaces. So I want to invite you to come into this series by saying, Lord, what would you show me? Lord, let me learn from this man. We'll meet this king that right away you cannot miss this king. Then that's Saul. Then we'll meet King David, the one who was literally missed or passed over. And then we'll spend some time with Solomon, the one who, when you examine his life, you say, you kind of missed it, didn't you? So I want to encourage you to find a copy of the scriptures. We're going to go through several chapters quite quickly. But again, as I mentioned before, we're going to camp on chapters 13 and 15. First Samuel chapter 8, it's found in the Pew Bible on page 234. And there's a key verse that we'll come back to, and that is this, that the people wanted a king. They shouted for a king. They called for a king. Some background is absolutely essential, and we'll actually skip to chapter 12, where Solomon, who is God's prophet, gives an overview of the children of Israel. In chapter 12, he tells us that whether it was in Moses' day or Aaron's day or Joshua's day, the children of Israel rejected and turned away to foreign gods. They were always rebellious. And then Solomon, Samuel, excuse me, Samuel says in the book of Judges, it was the same time, but now you want a king. Why did they want a king, Pastor Kirk? Well, in Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, it tells us that Samuel's boys weren't walking with the Lord. And this key verse came up. And we want to be a king. We want a king because we want to be like the other nations. They weren't like the other nations. Israel wasn't like the other nations. God, wanted, God especially treated them to be a witness and a testimony to all other nations. That was his plan. Doesn't that sound familiar with what Jesus' good friend Peter says? You are a holy nation. You are a royal priesthood. You live not for yourselves. God's people love better. They serve without conditions. We believe the character matters, even when no one sees. 
We forgive and we're called to turn the other cheek. We get angry over things done to nations and people groups, both from cradle to grave. We care. But the people of Israel and the people of our times and the people of Jesus' time, they rejected God. In fact, can you see what God says in 1 Samuel chapter, let's see, what verse is it? Chapter 7, or verse 7. It says this, And the Lord told Samuel, listen to what the people are saying. They want a king. It's not you who they've rejected, but they've rejected me as their king. Does that sound familiar? Our friend John writes in John chapter 1, verse 10 through 11, Jesus was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. The book of Psalms says to us in Psalm 118, 22, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and the one who we rejected wore a crown of thorns on our behalf. That's important to know. That background is essential before we meet this first king, King Saul. Now, when you first meet King Saul, we're going to see that he goes from a hero to being one who is victorious in battle. And his arc of his life goes, goes into being a tyrant. And he ends his life, actually, in a very hard and difficult way. I think one of the reasons, and I mentioned, I've mentioned this before the last couple of weeks, one of the reasons I'm so encouraged that we can take God's word as it is is because God's word also tells about the messy things. It's not just the highlight reels of the saints of God. It's the messy things, too. And we go, wow, God really cares for people. It's essential to know before you meet the king the background why people ask for a king. They wanted to be like the other nations. And we're not like the other nations, friends. We don't act the way others do because the Spirit of God is in us and changes us and transforms us. That's some important background information. So let's jump to 1 Samuel chapter 9. This is what we know about Saul. What was he like? Well, the scriptures tell you in 1 Samuel chapter 1, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish, son of Abel, the son of Zior, the son of Bekorah, the son of Ephah, of Benjamin. And what the NIV doesn't tell you is it doesn't use this word, but it's in the original translation. And that man was of great wealth or of great character. In other words, he came from good stock. He had good DNA. Six generations are there. The other thing that you'll notice about Saul as you take a look at this is that he's handsome. Now, it's more than just being a good-looking young man. The word that's used there is the word tov, T-O-V. It's the word that's used in Genesis chapter 1 when God said that the world after he created was good, or it was tov. What a beautiful word to describe someone. Spiritually, mentally, character-wise, he was a good. That's how, that's how the scriptures record Saul. And the other thing is, you can't miss him. Because what the Bible says is he was head and shoulders over someone, over all other people. Head and shoulders. He had good, he came from good genes, he came from good morals, he came from a caring home. And Saul, this first king, this potential candidate for the people who said, we want a king, we want a king, he meets Samuel. And he's on a business trip. First time they meet, he went looking for an expensive lost inventory, namely cattle. 
And you pick up a little bit about the home life when Saul says, we best be going after looking for the cattle for a while because my father may be more concerned about me than he is his cattle. And on a business trip, he meets Solomon. Why am I saying Solomon? Samuel. I'm going to mess up everybody, okay? So just bear with me. Samuel says to Saul, Israel's future is in your hands. And look at verse 21 in 1 Samuel chapter 9. It says this, I'm not a Benjamite. From the, I'm from the smallest tribe of Israel. And is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? There's two ways you can read that. Commentators say he was overwhelmed with the responsibility of what Samuel said to him. Another way of reading that is he's showing his insecurity. You can read it both ways. Which way is right? The answer is yes. The people wanted a king. And so, God's going to give him a king. Chapter 10, as we quickly go through this, is both the private anointing in verses 1 through 2 and the public recognition. People wanted to live, long live the king. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 24. But when he was recognized as the king, you'll notice what he does. Verse 22 said, where is he? He's hiding amongst the equipment the King James Version says, he's hiding amongst the stuff. If any of you have hoarders in your family, you get it. He's been privately anointed, publicly selected, and he's hiding. But you'll also notice in verse 9, the word of encouragement in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9, read what that says. His heart was changed. You cannot encounter the living God without your heart being changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says this, Therefore you are a new creation in Christ. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. Galatians chapter 5 tell us about the corrupt nature and the spiritual nature that war against each other. When you meet the living God, your heart is changed. Chapter 11 gives us a big win. It tells us about a great battle that Saul became king. The Ammonites were humiliating God's people. In fact, if you read down in this, these Bibles, the Pews, Pew Bibles, you'll notice some fine print there in the right corner. Take a look at what it says. The Mesoaroic text, which are the oldest texts from the Dead Sea Scroll, said that the Nashash, Nashash, king of the Ammonites, oppressed the Gadites and Reubenites severely. He gouged out all their right eyes and struck terror and dread in Israel. Not a man remained among the Israelites beyond the Jordan whose right eye was not gouged out by Nashash, king of the Ammonites, except the 7,000 men that fled and entered Jabesh Gilead. Why did they poke out the right eye? What's significant about that, Pastor? Well, the left eye would cover the shield. And with the right eye, the right eye was for fighting. There was no depth perception. 
I asked uh, several pastors this week. I had a, met had lunch on Wednesday with a group of lead pastors, and I said, I'm wrestling with this. What do you think the significance of that? Oh, that's easy, one of them said. If you poke out the right eye, you can't shoot a rifle with deer. And I thought, well, okay, we can go with that. But they humiliated him. Saul heard about this. He was livid, and he scored a great victory. He scored a great victory. In chapter 12, before we land on a key section, there's two points where Samuel gives his farewell speech. There's two key points. Key point number one in chapter 12 is this, found in verse 15. The king, too, must obey. The king is not an exception. He must obey the commands of God. He's not an outlier. He must obey as well. But the second point, the key point in this chapter, is don't miss verse 22. And that's the verse on the screen. For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people because the Lord has been pleased to make you his own. God will be faithful to his word. This is the background. This is the setup. This is the victory. And now you might be saying, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? You're saying that he was chosen and he's rejected? How come? Victory will be marked by disobedience. Rejection will always be preceded by disobedience. And we'll see that in chapter 13 through 15. This is the part that I wanted to land on and what I want us to consider and look at. It's the heart of the story. It's the heart of the king. In this section, in 13 through 15, twice he is rejected. Chapter 13 is set up by a military conflict again, this time with the Philistines. Notice verse 8. Things are not moving along as quickly. Solomon hasn't come in the window of seven days. They're fighting the Philistines and people. The army that Saul is over is leaving, fleeing. And he takes matters into his own hands. In fact, when he is confronted by Samuel, he uses this word in verse uh, 13, I believe it is. I thought, I felt compelled, verse, verse 12. I thought now the Philistines would come down against Gilgav, and I have now sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offerings. The word literally means I worked up the courage, I forced myself, I didn't want to do it. Samuel hadn't come, and the only person who was to offer the burnt offerings was Samuel, exactly. And he took matters into his own hands. And Samuel says to Saul, you've done a foolish thing. You will be rejected. You have not followed the commands of the Lord. Even the kings are not an exception. And so his actions had consequences. And another king outside of Saul's bloodline would be selected. Rejection number one, preceded by disobedience. What do we learn? Obedience matters. Chapter 14 is sandwiched between two rejections. We see a hasty and foolish, rash oath said, 
and you think to yourself, what in the world is going on? Chapter 14 is just fascinating and summarized in a nutshell. It takes place in a military conflict. Saul's own boy, Jonathan, and a trusted servant do a secret reconnaissance mission. When you read chapter 14, you'll find out again and again, it says no one knew about this, not even his father, no one in the camp. They went to deal with the Philistines. And there's a great verse. Look at verse 6. Take a look at verse 6 on chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. And the Living Translation says it the best. It says, let's go across to the outpost of those pagans, Jonathan said to his armor bearer. I love this. Perhaps the Lord will help us, for nothing can hinder the Lord. He can win a battle whether he has many warriors or only a few. Yeah! So they go on. And how did it go? Verse 15 says this, a terrible panic came upon the Philistines' army, sent by God. But don't miss that key word, by God. It's the same word, Elohim, that we see in Genesis chapter 1. He is the God of the maker of the heavens and earth, God the Father Almighty. Great panic comes across the Philistine troops, and Saul makes a rash vow, kill them. If anyone eats the plunder before evening, he will be killed. Even if it's my own son, Jonathan. Jonathan didn't get the memo. And so after the end of this battle, after this mighty army had fought and fought and fought and fought, well, they find out that it was Jonathan who actually broke the oath of his dad, Saul, who makes this crazy rash oath Anyone who eats before evening will be killed. And he said, it's my son too. And the army says, no, you're not going to kill Jonathan. He's the only one who had the guts or the courage to fight the Philistines. You're not going to do that. And you kind of scratch your head and you go, Saul, Saul, what were you thinking? The end of chapter 14 tells us something that's very important You'll notice all the victories that he had, beginning in verse 47. Saul assumed rule over Israel, and he fought against their enemy on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistine. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. This man was victorious, but he disobeyed. So we come to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, there are some really hard and difficult issues that come up. One of them is when God says in verse 2, do not spare them, put them to death, men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So what's that all about? Pastor, I don't get it. I thought God was a loving God. How do we deal with that? How do we deal with that tension? It is a difficult issue and came across this article that I found was really helpful and I want to show, show it to you. It's from gotquestions.org. I've found it very helpful over the years in ministry. It said this, we do not fully understand why God would command such a thing in verse 2, but we trust God that he is just and we recognize that he is, we are incapable of fully understanding a sovereign, infinite, and eternal God. As we look at difficult issues like verse 2, we must remember that God's ways are higher than his, our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We have to be willing to trust God and have faith in him even when we do not understand his ways. And then the article goes on to say this. 
Unlike us, God knows the future. God knew what the results would be if Israel did not completely eradicate the Amalekites. If Israel did not carry out God's orders, the Amalekites would come back to trouble the Israelites in the future. Saul claimed to have killed everyone but the Amalekite king, Agog. Obviously, Saul was lying. Just a couple decades later, there are enough Amalekites to take David and his men and families captive. After David and his men attacked the Amalekites and rescued their families, 400 Amalekites escaped. If Saul had fulfilled what God commanded him, this never would have occurred. Several hundred years later, a descendant of Agag, Haman, tried to have the entire Jewish people exterminated. So Saul's incomplete obedience almost resulted in Israel's destruction. God knew this would occur, so he ordered the extermination of the Amalekites ahead of time. Saul didn't obey. The second tension that is in here is there's a powerful word that's found in verse 11 and 35. It's repeated two times. It says that God regretted that he made Saul the king. It doesn't address any of the issue that you might have, that I might have, like, so why in the world did you select him in the first place, right? The word regret can mean to change one's mind, to have pity or com compassion or regret. These are tensions in this text that are difficult to wrestle through. Saul didn't, Saul spares the king. He doesn't follow the Lord's command in verse 13. And then he lies to Samuel. I did what the Lord commanded. Verse 14 said, then why am I hearing the cattle mooing and the sheep? Why do I hear these sounds? Verse 16 says, it was the troops. They made me do it. Sounds like excuses. Verse 17 says this, a reminder from Samuel to Saul where you came from. You were small. You were insignificant. Again, he blames it on the troops. There is a difference between confession, which is acknowledgement of wrongdoing, and repentance, which is the realignment of life that moves us to our Father in light of our confession. There's a difference between the two. Saul shows confession, but not repentance. And then these famous verses come up. What can we learn by looking at a living word from a character who lived long ago? These are words that I hope burn in your heart and I hope resonate in your soul this week. Lord, what would you have me to do about obedience? 1 Samuel 15, 23 said this, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as much as obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of the ram. To obey is better than sacrifice. And if you go to verse 23, notice the illustration that Samuel uses. He contrasts rebellion with divination. And that's not a strong enough word. The word actually means witchcraft and occult. And you'll see that in 1 Samuel 28. He compares not obeying to arrogance and stubbornness with evil and idolatry. God's very first command is there are no other gods before me. 
Jesus said the first and greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And so what is the heart of the king? The heart of the king is one who was chosen, but who was rejected. One who was victorious, yet disobeyed. What can we learn? God, what would you have me to do? What would you have me to do during this season of Lent to say, Lord, what are you calling me to obey? I want to close with this illustration. Uh, it's set in, uh, in the time of the Jesus Revolution. Some of you have told me you've been to the movie. If you haven't been to the movie Jesus Revolution, it's fantastic. You laugh, you cry. It's about a real movement of God that happened in the late 60s and early 70s that impacted many people, including a young man from Brooklyn who came to Christ through the Jesus Revolution. He died at age 28. He fell in love at 19 and lived for about 10 years and impacted the Christian church. His name was Keith Green. And some of us remember his story. He wrote a song that I couldn't get out of my mind this week. Couldn't get out of my mind this week. And I thought, Lord, this fits with this message. This is Keith Green from about 1982, so it's from a YouTube clip, and the images are not real clean. Maybe we could drop the lights so we could see it a little bit better. But his song is, To Obey is Better Than Sacrifice, and it's based off of this song. To obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want your riches. I want your life. He puts it to song, what Samuel said to Saul. this melody and I just taught a Bible study on uh, remember Saul king in the Old Testament God told him to do something and he did half of it patted himself on the back and gave the other half to the Lord as a sacrifice the Lord said I don't want your sacrifice I want your obedience
I want more than Sundays and Wednesday nights. <laughs> Cause if you can't come to me every day, then don't bother coming we eagerly respond to Jesus on his mission, I would have you ponder these words. What is God teaching you? What is God teaching you about obeying in his word? What's he asking you to obey? Secondly, as we live on mission, who can you help in prayer and fasting this week as you intercede for people who God puts on your heart? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your living word. Thank you for your life-giving word. It's a hard word. We look at Saul not casting stones, but we look at Saul saying, Lord, have mercy on me. Forgive me. I pray for my brothers and sisters as they wrestle with your Holy Spirit this week. As each of us say, Lord, what are you calling me to do? We hear powerfully this song, to obey is better than sacrifice. You want our hearts. There's nothing that surprises you. We thank you for your transforming power of the Spirit. And Father, help us turn from sin, repentant, living in alignment with what you show to be true. In Jesus' name, amen.